Hey everyone, we're Silver Pilled Podcast. I'm Harrison. And I'm Lowell. And if you want to share an experience with anything paranormal or unexplained, shoot us an email at silverpilled at gmail.com. And if you want to follow us on social media, check us out at Instagram at Silver Pilled Podcast. Tonight, we are going to welcome a, an amazing guest to have on. It's pretty surreal to have someone with so much knowledge that we lack to provide us with some information and hopefully answer some questions that we have. But um, I'd like to, we would like to welcome Dr. Judd Burton. How are you doing, Dr. Judd? I'm well, thank you. Great, great. Um, before we get moving, I would like if you could, to tell everyone listening where they can find your work, how they can get in touch with you, how they can show support. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I, I'm on, you know, all the basic social media platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, as, as long as I can stay on them. Anyway, <laughs> uh, YouTube, YouTube uh, working on, on getting, uh, expanding into all alternative platforms as a sort of redundancy, but people can, uh, if people are interested in my work, they can they can go to um, well, my websites are in the process of being revamped. I finally, you know, talking about people who can uh, who have the insight and skill set, <laughs> I finally reached out to somebody who, who could do that, and uh, I um, was able to uh, get some really good web work done on on the new sites. And so the institute website, the Institute of Biblical Anthropology address for for right now is Dr. Judd Burton dot com just d-r-j-u-d-d-b-u-r-t-o-n and then when the domain forwarding kicks in it'll go back to you can go either to that address or to t-i-o-b-a dot org people can go there we're about to launch the repackaged course coursework that i teach and that it's it's so slick and the content was fun to put together because that that's my bread and butter but just the the feel of it uh it's it's pretty rock and roll so i'm excited about it and people can can certainly email me at professorburton at yahoo.com. That's just kind of the general rundown. All right, perfect. Thank you so much. You've written a, a handful of books, right? You, I have. You mentioned that you're working on a new one right now. Mm -hmm. Do you mind telling us a little bit about that? Ah, uh, certainly. Yeah. Again, a lot of this is related to earlier work that I've done in a number of areas, particularly as relates to the the pre-flood giants and even the post-flood giants. In books like Interview with the Giant and the Nephilim Dossier and uh, Paneus. But the, the forthcoming work is called Van Helsing Way. Uh, it's kind of a nod to Professor Van Helsing mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in uh, Dracula, which, which is, he's always been an interesting character to me because one of the main weapons used against Dracula in that novel is, is faith. And it's, it's something that, that, I mean, it's not really flying under the radar. It's very clear that they're doing that in the, the course of the book. Uh, but I always thought that Van Helsing was this really interesting marriage of faith and scholarship. The purpose of the book is to look at, look at, at, at what I call in my coursework that I offer on the topic, preternatural morphology. In other words, the, the demonic manifestation of something that is both physical and spiritual the demonic manifestation of in, in the form of creatures that you would find in folklore and mythology, such as the vampire and the werewolf, and 
ghouls and revenants and all kinds of chimerical beasts. And so it's looking at, at that, uh, uh, again, sort of doing what I've done with these other works, and that is applying these anthropological models to the study of this, what is considered to be peripheral material in the Bible, but it, as we were talking about before the show, is actually quite central to the narrative of the Bible. And I, I wanted to take the sort of approach of, of biblical anthropology that I've been using and apply it to, you know, kind of ethnologically, cross-culturally looking at some of, some of the main categories of these kinds of creatures and what are their potential origins? Uh, what does the Bible say about them? Is there, is there a perennial sort of archetype of, of what these creatures are when they show up in different, different uh, cultures? Uh, is there, uh, you know, what do you do if you're confronted with one of these things? And again, without letting too too much of the cat out of the bag, it's it, it's it's really to look at the starting point is the origin of each of these creatures. And I take it back to the pre-flood world uh, and the Genesis six event uh, that really kicks off the the groundwork for these kinds of creatures that first emerge in the pre-flood world uh, and then sort of in the post-flood world disseminate into other parts of, of the earth uh, so that we find them, you know, in cultures all over the globe. Uh, and so I, I, I thought that this was because so many people are interested in like cryptids and, and supernatural creatures and things like that. It's just, it's a, it's a pretty relevant and pertinent topic, especially when you consider, you know, not only the, that most seminaries and churches won't even won't even touch this this subject matter, uh, won't even dig to see what it is that the Bible actually says about these kinds of monstrosities and why they're important, why they would be important to a believer. You know, what why would a Christian be concerned about these kinds of things anyway? Aren't they just fables? Well, no. It turns out that they represent people's experiences in real space and time, and even if a percentage of those are, are, you know, let's say fabricated, then it only takes a few of them to completely shatter the notion that, that they're simply fables and stories. So these are things that, have, that represent those real experiences between people and the supernatural, uh, which I think is an anchor point for the validity of the very study, why we should even be concerned with them. Now, when you put that into a more general context, uh, just just quantitatively how many more cryptid sightings that that we have almost you know on a monthly basis yearly if not monthly it's just like a force multiplier you know mm -hmm. I, I like what what art art bell used to say on on coast to coast am when he hosted it he always used to talk about something called the quickening now he wasn't thinking necessarily in prophetic or biblical terms but it's really a similar kind of concept. This, you know, the sense that we're sort of barreling impossibly towards something. There's all this gravitas to it. We can't stop it. You know, it's but it's it's becoming more and more noticeable the more that the, the days and weeks and months and years roll by. You know, I, I used to say tongue in cheek, you know, what what are people going to do when these things show up on your front lawn? You know, if you've got a column of these hybridized hominids you know gigantic hominids walking down your street to enforce the latest law how are you going to wrap your head around that much less put it in theological context and what do you do in terms of a boots on the ground kind of uh, a scenario these are the kinds of questions that are going to become increasingly relevant and pertinent uh, as the years goes goes on go on and it's amazing to me that people who claim to subscribe to a biblical worldview, a supernatural worldview, still treat this stuff as peripheral. That's dangerous. That's not even, that's not, if we're to follow Christ, if he's supposed to be our, our, our greatest exemplar in our individual ministries, half of what Jesus did is easily was deal with the various iterations of the demonic. That right there, and he ought to tell you something. Yeah. Uh, and so the, it becomes an even more pressing issue when you see this culture war that's been waged against, generally we're talking about the West here, but also the entire world. But in the West, particularly in America, literacy rates are down. Cultural literacy is certainly out the, 
out the window. And it's even worse for biblical literacy uh, within the church because nobody reads their Bible. Everything, everything's just passive. You know, we watch our, our, our reels and our five-minute TikTok videos and our attention spans have just been eroded down to nothing. Well, that that's that really flies in the whole face of the, the biblical notion of proving yourself by study. And I'm saying that we need to study these, you know, what's going on within the supernatural cultural sphere and examine that contextually, theologically, historically against the backdrop of the Bible. What does the Bible have coming? And it turns out that there's an awful lot that A is not getting, as I said, not getting taught from the pulpit or the Sunday school room. B is certainly not being taught to ministers in 99.9% of the seminaries and colleges today. And C, sorely absent uh, in any sort of, of educational milieu or venue uh, for lay people in the church to to actually lock onto and learn more about this. And as a, as a footnote to all that, we have some decent translations of the Bible, yes, but we got there's a lot of bad passage translations in the Bible that people can argue are either poor translations or they're they're purposefully obfuscated and muddied so that they're bad translations and don't reflect the the original context, the cultural context that they were written in. You see that with a great deal of frequency in translation. So to circle back, I saw that there was a very, and have for a number of years, saw that there was a very pressing need for a methodology. And it's what I'm presenting, not just in my coursework, but in this book about how to not only address the, these issues, but to first educate yourself about them with the, the sort of biblical slash divine counsel worldview. That's awesome. I, I couldn't agree with, with you more on all of those topics, especially you mentioned that it's becoming increasingly more relevant, it seems, that cryptids are being seen. When we had a previous guest on, we talked about how it's almost like when I was growing up, Bigfoot was the big deal. Now mm -hmm. it's almost like Bigfoot's getting pushed to the back burner and the whole new topic right. is Dogman it's, it's right. everyone is seeing dogman now it's like the new bigfoot that's the newest mm -hmm. trend and and i've always questioned why that is why is it all of a sudden this a different entity altogether and it seems downright way more ferocious and terrifying than than something in the woods that doesn't want to be seen yeah i agree and in broader context the dogman fits within the you know the same kind of lore that is preserved encounters with creatures particularly werewolves mm -hmm. uh, that demonstrate the same kind of ferocity and i actually teach a, a course on and there's a chapter in this book forthcoming book on werewolves and you'll definitely get i think that i think that what i'm saying here again it's in the bible a lot of this stuff you know it's taken back to scripture but i i, I don't think anybody's articulated it the way that i have using these anthropological and historical models you know, there's a long history, uh, particularly in terms of, of, you know, on the one hand, the oral history slash folklore mythology of these kinds of occurrences going back to antiquity and prehistory. And then we actually have in, in more recent millennia and centuries, we actually have writing that details the experiences that people are having with creatures like, the, in this case, werewolf creatures. And just with the, as with a lot of these cryptids, uh, these dogmen and, and, and werewolves and, and many of these hybrid, hybrid creatures, we've got a thing called the goat man here where I live in Merkel uh, that's basically a satyr. None of the stories that people relate about encounters with these entities or creatures, however you want to, to appellate them, none of these things are very friendly. Uh, they typically don't have your best interests at heart. Uh, they're menacing and ferocious and in some cases, you know, downright dangerous. And this is a, a, a theme in these accounts that, again, goes back to antiquity. And if uh, certainly people can read about this in my, my forthcoming book, but they're, you know, my coursework also helps to, to sort of flesh out the details of the of the story of the werewolf and the archetype of the werewolf and 
what what the biblical framework is for for that sort of creature. But there's a really uh, great and worthwhile book that I would recommend to people uh, called The Book of the Werewolves that the Institute publishes a copy of by a, a fellow named Sabine Beringold. He was a, a minister and an ethnologist. And if people have never heard of, of the book of, of werewolves that he wrote, then they have undoubtedly uh, sung one of the hymns that he wrote in church. Beringold is the author of Onward Christian Soldiers. Oh, wow. <laughs> Good grief. Yeah. So here's a guy who actually, and he actually had his own werewolf encounter that he relates in this book. But he clearly, you know, and this is, this is like late 19th, early, early, early 20th century. Right? Clearly, you know, here's somebody who could, who saw that this material was pertinent looking at it through a biblical lens because he already had the theological training and the, uh, you know, his, in his capacity as an ethnologist, he was vastly interested and schooled in the folklore of Europe. Uh, and so, you know, that, that book, the book of the worlds is a great text for getting, a, it, it's one, not only one of the more digestible texts on the subject, but it, along with some of the work that Montague Summers did on vampires are both authoritative in my opinion. Well, I was just kind of curious. We talk about vampires and everybody today thinks of these sexy Hollywood right. creatures. I mean, is that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that just something that's been twisted or, or do these things come off as? Well, it's, it's, you know, again, if we're looking at the, the basic makeup of each of these, these creatures as demonic, in other words, we can trace those origins back to the, because there were, there were animal, human, animal, angelic hybrids in the pre-flood world. And there, those were also Nephilim, but they were chimeric Nephilim and their, their, their bodies were also destroyed in the flood. And, you know, Enoch is clear about this, you know, I'm not equating Enoch with scripture, but it's referenced in scripture. So that should give us reason to look a little more closely at Enoch and Enoch fleshes this out in the judgment handed down to uh, the spirits of the giants uh, that they'll there'll be unclean spirits. He uses that phraseology, which consequently is repeated in the New Testament. Uh, there are unclean spirits on the earth. Always, That's why they, they're trying to indwell flesh so that they, they can actualize on the lusts and appetites that they had when they had bodies. When you plug that into the vampire scheme or the werewolf or the ghoul or any of these, these other folklore creatures, it begins to come clear what they're their motivations are and what their character makeups are. They're, they're clearly demonic. Uh, and they, they attain these, these totemic or animal traits from the experiments that the watchers conducted, you know, in, in the Genesis six context, but you bring up a really, in, really interesting and pertinent point, uh, Lowell. And that is, you know, well, aren't vampires just these, you know, sexy rock star you know uh, uh soap opera versions of, of of vampires that's the cinematic gloss of a vampire in order to truly understand vampires and any of these other creatures that we've mentioned you really have to strip the cinematic and and to a degree the literary facade off off of these characters because they've been you know they get this sort of makeover and classic literature like uh, like in the uh the vampire by john polidori and everybody's familiar with count dracula mm -hmm. in in stoker's novel uh and that's kind of the beginning of that but you fast forward you know 75 80 90 100 years and here we are and you've got vampires as heroes and werewolves mm -hmm. as heroes mm -hmm. and uh uh, the the key to again the key to understanding all this is stripping away that cinematic and literary veneer that's been placed on vampires and werewolves and 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 to an extent zombies and 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 ghouls and things like that because these are not you know in the lore that preserves these encounters uh, in folklore and history again these are not manifestations that have your best interest at heart they're there to do you harm you know virtually every time and the danger of what pop culture and hollywood has done is that 
you risk making these things exemplars for your audience and those symbols and ideas resonate on a subconscious level you know that's it's the language of myth and symbols that you know in a lot of ways is kind of our mother tongue you know and the enemy knows that you know he knows that god created us to kind of be hardwired like that and so it, it's a very demonic dark nefarious sort of thing that we're seeing now making these these heroes and out of out of monsters really out of these truly demonic uh, malevolent creatures and that's that's very dangerous because it makes it makes them enticing and appealing at the supernatural level the cultural level the cool level especially for younger audiences and that 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 is is wickedness distilled in in my estimation now where it really be even with like stoker stokers let, let's just take count Dracula. clearly an evil dude right i mean mm -hmm. he, he's a composite of the character traits of the european vampires particularly the eastern european vampires. but it's in in even when you get to things like Anne rice's novels like interview with the giant or excuse me interview with the vampire in, in uh the vampire lestat the vampire mm -hmm. Company, you know, even though they're the protagonist in those stories, and I, I'm not lionizing Anne Rice, but what I'm saying is that it, this is kind of the, the dividing line, the fulcrum, if you will, on which all of this term began to turn, is that even her vampires, although they were the sinners, the protagonist of these stories, they were anti-heroes at best and still pretty villainous and subject to base morality because there's this constant inner dialogue with so many of these characters like louis and the side is like deep down you know yeah on the surface they're relishing in what they do but deep down and they're always making these state statements that you, you i mean there's no muddied water here there's no obfuscation they know that they're monstrous they know deep down that what they're doing is counter to good it's counter to nature it's counter to what's moral and mm -hmm. widely beneficial that ultimately it's the most selfish kind of survival there's mm -hmm. nothing altruistic about it. And that's something that I think distinguishes, e even when Anne Rice comes into this discussion, it sort of distinguishes her from a Stephanie Meyer who wrote the Twilight series. Mm -hmm. You know, any of a, a handful of, of these, these paranormal teen novelists that are just churning out this garbage that's getting made into movies. And even, you know, for older audiences like The Vampire Diaries and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, it's the same kind of story let's let's hear let's make heroes and and uh rock stars out of out of these monsters you know yeah per, uh, that, that presumably are cannibalistic i mean anything that that sucks blood I, I don't think that we should be glorifying anything like that right no and they they offer you know particularly in in some of the western traditions you know the vampire that's all they do strictly take the blood, you know, and there, there's, I've written about this. There's, there's a physical component to blood, but there's also a supernatural component to it. Moses wrote about it extensively in the old Testament, mm -hmm. so much so that there were prohibitives against its consumption uh, in the Levitical laws. Mm -hmm. So you've got this biblical prescription, a proscription, excuse me, against, you know, against actually the consumption of blood. And there's a reason for that because, what were the Nephilim doing in the pre-flood world? Mm -hmm. who, were, who were then the demons of the ancient world and the modern world? They mm -hmm. were blood drinkers and flesh eaters and, and murderers and rapists and just the worst base of behavior and activity that you can imagine. God's pretty clear about us distancing ourselves from, from those kinds of, of exemplars because there are eternal consequences for succumbing to their wiles. And the danger in making heroes out of them is that you you work on the subconscious of an entire, you know, really multiple generations, not just young people uh, who are just drawn into this stuff. And it widens that opening for demo demonic activity, for demons to come in, uh, you know, the deliverance ministers and missionaries and, and lay people who work in this field of all kinds testify to is going on with alarming speed and uh, occurrence mm -hmm. yeah even the even the blood cried out you know with cain and abel was... that's right the, the this now the sacrality of blood is not it's not unique to ancient judaism or the or Judeo, the judeo-christian mm -hmm. tradition 
the sacrality of blood is, is another perennial cultural feature, you know, otherwise you wouldn't have things like blood sacrifice and bloodletting and, you know, human sacrifice. You wouldn't have all these things if there wasn't this deep seated idea that there was something supernatural, uh, supernaturally significant about the blood. Now that's why I take Mesoamerica, the ancient Mesoamericans, whether we're talking about the Olmec or the Aztec or the Maya, you want to talk about something vampiric. They called blood, uh, the Maya in particular articulated this, they called blood the food of the gods, mm. which is why Mesoamericans, uh, you know, they, they offered human sacrifice. They, And it's interesting when they would fight wars, you know, most of the Mayan city-states were fighting against each other. Uh, unlike the harmonic, what the harmonic convergence crowd would like you to believe that they were just hippies and they got along with each other. Uh, <laughs> but the Aztecs were clearly fighting their neighbors. But what's interesting about warfare in Mesoamerica is that they would seldom ki kill the captives that they took because they were saving them to sacrifice on the on their altars, you know, at the tops of these pyramids. Oh, wow. Yeah, some of those, I, I can't remember the stats I read somewhere, but the amount of skeletons found under some of these pyramids was it's like astronomical. Baffling, ba not and not just not just built into the pyramids uh, or, or in the antechambers or, or catacombs or things that you find within these structures. But, you know, another thing that the Maya used to do is they would, they believed that their cenotes, which were basically uh sinkholes that had filled in with water they believed that these things were entrances to the underworld to the land the world of shibulba the god their god of the underworld and they would offer infants and young children and women as sacrifices to these chthonic deities and we know this because we find uh, in in the ones that eventually dried up we found we found remains of infants and children and women Oh uh so it's i mean it's just horrific you want to talk about something that's bloodthirsty and vampiric it, it isn't it interesting that the the diaspora of these giants you know that left the levant the timing that i theorize that they leave coincides with the emergence of city states and civilizations in mesoamerica it's it's just a theory i have but i think that's why these mayans and these aztecs were conquered so easily by the invaders i think god kind of put a stop to their evil ways i forget how many men when they conquered the mayans the general in charge he was outnumbered like a hundred to one when they mm -hmm. walked right into the middle of the mayan empire and took it over well really by the time that the europeans arrived most of the big mayan city-states like palenque and tikal and copan so on and so forth had been vacated the remnant of the Maya that survived and were around during the time when, let's say, the Cortez arrived. In fact, he and the first people he encounters on the island of Cozumel uh, or the Maya that, that continued to live there. And so you, the, the Maya that remained were this kind of amalgam with the Toltec people uh, that some scholars call the Toltec Maya. Like, I'm sure you guys have heard of like Chichen Itza or, or the, the Pyramid of Kukulkan is. Mm -hmm. That was a Toltec Maya site in the Yucatan. Okay. Uh, and so the, the Maya were certainly still around in pretty substantial numbers, but they weren't living for the most part in the big city states that had, had sort of typified the what was called the, the classic and the early post-classic period. Uh, but yeah, you're right. When, when I mean, when Cortez gets there, his force is vastly out by the Aztecs. And it was this sort of juxtaposition of... of of their prophecies about the feathered serpent, the return of, of Quetzalcoatl uh, in the form of this light-skinned, bearded people uh, that the Maya had called, they were expecting they called Kukulkan. Uh, they called them the Viracochas in South America. Yeah, I think that there was a, a divine hand in all of that, you know, by lining up lining up the kind of, you know, superior technology, basically, that the, that the Europeans had. Now, that's not to say that in other cases, the wholesale slaughter of, of natives, let's say in the continental United States, that's a completely different different thing in my estimation because I, I have I have we could probably do an, another entire program on this, but I suspect that part of the reason that the remnant of Native Americans in the 18th and 19th century were finished off had to do with the fact that their their lore 
their history uh, supported and corroborated a biblical supernatural worldview oh. because they they themselves had attested to fighting wars with giants. Uh, the like the Lovelock caves, and the the Lovelock caves, but but virtually every every general grouping, whether we're talking about the the peoples like the Paiute uh, who occupied occupied the region in the uh, the Lovelock cave area in Nevada. That would be like the high desert uh, Great Basin region on the west side of the Rockies. You know, they had stories about them. The Paiute called them the Sitaka. Peoples on the western seaboard had had stories about encountering giants. Uh, the Plains natives from the Sioux in the north all the way down to the Comanche and the Tonkawa in Texas had stories about fighting these things, oh. uh, as did the, the remnants of the mound builders in the Mississippi River Valley. The woodland tribes on the eastern seaboard from the uh, you know, from the Narragansett and the Iroquois in the north all the way down to the Seminoles in Florida, they all had stories about these creatures. I, I'm not one of those that subscribes to the idea that everybody at the Smithsonian is working under the auspices of the New World Order or the Illum Illuminati or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. them. But to say that there aren't plants there that have directed, you know, policy and agenda, I think is a little naive. And mm -hmm. I think that that was part of the reason that you know, and it just adds to the tragedy of the story of the ultimate demise of a lot of Native tribes mm -hmm. is that they were killed in one respect and, and, you know, denigrated and peripheralized, you know, because their their stories, their literal history corroborated this biblical worldview. And, you know, like I say, that just that adds to the tragedy, you know, of their story. Thankfully, a lot of them you know, have survived and are still around and preserved those stories. And there are a good number of them who are, are, are Bible-believing, divine counsel-subscribed Christians as well. And I, I think a lot of that goes, goes to these people believed in a divine counsel model already, millennia, centuries in, in, in most cases, but in some cases millennia before they came in contact with people from the old. I'm getting a little off topic. But <laughs> It, it all t it it all of this ties to, ties together. You know that's what got me talking about the the Mesoamericans and then the Native. Like I said, we could do an entirely you know other show on that, but just just to put it in context, you know the natives had stories about about vampires and werewolves and dogmen and and Sasquatch and all of these kinds of creatures that are topical to what we're talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The uh, the, the Algonquin-speaking Indians in North America called it the Manitou. Uh, okay. This was a basically the American werewolf. You know, uh, even one of the members of the Corps of Discovery on the Lewis and Clark expedition wrote about encounters with the Manitou and these these medicine men who were basically skinwalkers who oh, could wow. transform in, into the Manitou. Mm. There there are even place names in North America that are named after the Manitou. The oh. province of Manitoba in Canada is named after the Manitou. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Manitou, Manitou Springs in Colorado is named after <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> we lived like 15 minutes away from yeah. there. <laughs> we, yep. we grew up there, yep. near there. Yep. And that that's place why that is, place was so weird, Lowell. It was. Man, it was very avoid, weird. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I hear. Uh, Doug Van Dorn is a colleague and friend of mine, and he lives in northern in northern Colorado. I mean, to tell you, you know, saying that 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 section of the state is weird is putting it mildly. There, there's, <laughs> yeah. some, there's some fringy stuff going on there for sure. So there's a mountain range that kind of butts up to Manitou Springs and it's National Forest, but the Air Force used it for training, for survival training. They would drop guys off into the yeah. into that forest and have them uh, land nav, navigate their way out right. as like a evasion training. And sure. I've talked to a few people from the academy there who have run into very large burn pits where there was sacrificed animal sacrifice and stuff going on in that area, right, right up the mountain range from Manitou Springs. And I mean, it's just yeah, kind of a, a known thing where we used to kick around back there in our four by four trucks, we'd always go armed. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and I mean, uh, Aside from, you know, concerns about the, you know, mountain lions and bears and stuff, <laughs> they're, they're all up in that range. But, yeah. you know, God, God knows what, you know, I mean, I, and even like the Fort Collins area was okay. like an enclave, enclave of Satanists 
and to my knowledge still is to this day one of the biggest in the country from what i understand oh wow good grief well wow. you lived there for a minute didn't you mm-hmm. a few months before i joined the army yeah, i lived mm-hmm. up there and it's on the outside it's a nice town but i don't know it's yeah and i would say that's true of most places in Col- i love colorado mm-hmm. i used to fly fish there all the time it's a very very beautiful state um it is yeah gorgeous it's became kind of a <laughs> it's a lot different than when we grew up there years and years ago yeah. we'll just say that absolutely you mentioned at one point about um the children and the the remains of children being mm-hmm. found in the pools that they believed were portals do you do you think that through the nephilim and these whatever the information that we received do you believe that or speculate i'm trying to word this correctly that blood can open portals if through through human sacrifice or things of that nature trauma whatever it is because that kind of makes me think of nimrod and the tower of babel because weren't weren't they sun worshipers during those times wasn't nimrod a sun worshiper and they would do human sacrifices well i mean there was there were a host of gods that that they worshipped uh, not not just sun worshipers in the case of nimrod he was most likely there's a good case to be made that he was the same person as Gilgamesh mm-hmm. in tradition. And so the, the the top trinity of gods in ancient Samaria, consequently very similar to uh, the tri- the triple pantheon that the uh, Proto-Indo-Europeans worshipped. Consequently, the Sumerians were Indo-European. They oh, wow. they were not okay. indigenous to that. They, they actually came from the Transcaucasus region. That Proto-Indo-Europeans uh, came from, and uh, the Sumerian—I don't want to get too off topic. The Sumerians call it, called themselves the Kian Gear. That was their indigenous name. It means that the black-headed or the black-eyed people, mm. because that's a that's a that's a common uh, phen- genetic phenotype of people in that part of the world. And so their Akkadian neighbors were the ones that gave them the name Shemer. Samaria. Oh, okay. um, but they they moved in from there. And if you have any conversancy in Mesopotamian mythology, you've probably heard of gods like a uh, and Enlil and Inki. That's that top tier that we're talking about. And of course, there is a, a rather diffuse, just as in any polytheistic system, uh, which often corresponds in a mocking sort of way to the divine council of Yahweh. Interestingly enough. You know, you find a, a diffuse pantheon of, of a myriad of deities. And so there certainly were solar deities that the Mesopotamians worshipped. Uh, but it's it's it, a lot of it depended on what city we're talking about. Because cities, in a general sense, and this is true of ancient cities in general, but cities in general, a general sense of Mesopotamia had their patron deities. In other words, one city's patron deity might not be the same as another. Okay. But they all regarded in some respect uh, and revered in some respect the entire pantheon. Same is true of the Egyptians, uh, of the Hurrians, of the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, on and on and so forth and so on, the Greeks, the Romans, any of the peoples in the ancient Near East, Central Asia, and the Mediterranean Basin. You're going to find the same kind of stuff uh, in terms of the structure of their pantheon. But your reference to Nimrod is, is interesting here, too, because... Nimrod seems to have gone through a transformation. In other words, he wasn't born one of these gigantic hybrid creatures. He became, you know, and that's the wording of the the phrase, the phraseology in the passage itself is that he became a mighty hunter against the Lord is the more accurate mm-hmm. translation. Uh, he became a Giborim. And so there's this sort of cultural baggage that the word Giborim uh, or mighty one drags around that it, that these are, are people that generally start off as human and they they are turned through mm-hmm. some sort of, of ritual or, or demonic manipulation in, into this gibberim, into this thing. And, and in like manner, that model, I think, is also applicable to how, at least on the possession side of the demonic, how people are said to change into vampires or change into werewolves or change into a revenant or a ghoul or a zombie that ritual that high magic that thaumaturgy anchored to uh will and intent seems to be very much behind this change that takes place and so it, I, I think i think it's it's quite relevant that you bring 
Nimrod slash Gilgamesh into uh, kind of orbit of the discussion we're talking. It was it was always something that I picked up in the reading through the Bible was just the constant mention of how important blood was. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. seemed like that was that was the biggest thing about Christ was that he spilled his blood for us. It was like he had to do that in order to counteract everything that had been done it's, through blood sacrifice before him. Before him and after him. For anybody that accepted the new covenant, absolutely. So that kind of leads me back to the the whole discussion of of vampires and even werewolves, these bloodthirsty, you know, demonic things. There there has to be something to do with blood that is so important to to the enemy and obviously I think it has to do with our DNA, but it seems that even yeah. in the in the Indian tribes, when you read about these skinwalkers, it's usually through a blood sacrifice or or the Wendigo. Uh, they literally, yeah, in the case of the the skinwalker, they literally have to ritualistically kill somebody that they love in order to. Now that kind of general magical model is repeated since time immemorial. Know, that kind of severity you find with frequency associated with these kinds of creatures and in the case of the skinwalker and a lot of the, the kind of shape-shifting elements uh, in uh, the lore of the southwest uh, if people want to learn more about this i highly recommend mark simmons book on southwestern witchcraft but you, they literally have to kill somebody in a ritualistic fashion uh, that they that they love that they're close to yeah, and I think Wendigo is through cannibalism. Isn't that right, mm -hmm. Lowell? That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. It just it seems that there's such an importance put on blood throughout the ages, from beginning with Cain and Abel all the way through the end, you know. And that's why, again, kind of coming full circle with Hollywood glamorizing something as ridiculous as consuming another person's blood and making it seem cool and fashionable it just it paints that picture that everyone's talking about that is is hollywood run by a bunch of this might be the thing to get us canceled i really don't care but is hollywood run by a bunch of satanists that have that are pushing this kind of defamation of of christ i think so and i i don't think that's just hyperbole i think that that's actually you know just even not even not even looking at it from a theological perspective let's Let's say that we were just to examine Hollywood in the terms of, on the one hand, uh, or let's just say a, as part of that that perspective study, you you would study the the general history of Hollywood, you know, the kind of social cultural history of Hollywood, and on the other hand, study just by studying the history of film and cinema, uh, and media in general in Hollywood, uh, but particularly since we're talking about movies and, and and Hollywood and TV and stuff like that. The, the history of cinema and, and to an extent TV and Hollywood, even if you took the theological ramifications out, in other words, we're not looking at this in terms of, of theology, more of like maybe a kind of religious studies perspective, comparative religion perspective. Uh, if we were to look at this, you know, as, as a historiographical project, we're actually looking at, at documents that tell the history of Hollywood, newspapers and letters and, and uh, movie scripts and biographies of of people and correspondence between directors and producers and the histories. You know, we're talking about a monumental project, perspective project here. <laughs> but if you, if you did if you did that, even just from a secular academic point of view, you could not help but bump into the personalities in the history of Hollywood that were overtly involved in the occult, and not even you know again. If you look at, at the A category that I propose in this grand project, multi-volume, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you just took the A, A section there, you're, you're looking at the social and cultural history of Hollywood. So you're not only looking at movie stars and starlets beginning all the way back from like the silent film era and the 20s, but you're also looking at the, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, socialites and debutantes who might necessarily not have been movie stars but they were like the kardashians or the mm -hmm. paris hiltons of, of that day you know kind of a thing you musicians you know jazz musicians when they came on the scene you're, you're looking at all of these different personalities you know that lived in hollywood well you're inevitably going to run into 
into personalities like Jack Parsons mm-hmm. and L. Ron Hubbard. Parsons in particular, who was a strict devotee of Aleister Crowley's Thelemic system of ritual magic. And it's no secret that Parsons called his his rocket fuels uh, and his, op, you know, he called them magical elixirs. Mm-hmm. He routinely worshipped Pan before launching his rockets or testing these these fuels. You know, he and, and Hubbard were involved in the Babylon workings, which were specifically designed to bring the whore of Babylon mm-hmm. into our dimension. So even if you're not looking at this stuff from biblical studies, biblical perspective, let's just say that we're writing this large multi-volume, you know, sociocultural history of Hollywood, you can't help but run into these kinds of personalities who, who were influential and who were, you know, became production company owners and uh, often beloved people like Walt Disney, mm-hmm. you know, who were, who were, who were pedophiles mm-hmm. uh, and involved in, in this kind of ritual magic. So th- these are just the overt, you know, ones that you can't help but miss that if you're going to write a comprehensive history of Hollywood, when you start looking at this stuff through the biblical lens and you plug in the demonic modus operandi, what their stratagem has been since the beginning, uh, as well as the stratagem of their forebears, the watchers, it all becomes even more nefarious than it is on the surface. You realize that it's not just entertainment, but it's it's weaponized media. Yep, they they call it programming for a reason. TV program. I mean, TV programming. That's right. Yeah. It seems like the bigger the movie, or the the more of this programming it has in it, the bigger the push that movie gets when it comes out. At least on oh, a yeah. movie. On- I mean, there's there's certain movies that I like that, I mean, they're kind of, that I thought would be huge, and they're kind of almost swept under the rug, but these movies mm-hmm. that seem to push that that message get all the press and all the attention and everything mm-hmm. else. You can see them pushing it more than than just just a, a different movie. Certainly. And yeah. they're, they're and usually they're, terrible, they're, too. I mean, that's... They, uh, sorry. they are. They are. It seems like the smaller movies that they don't push as much are actually worth somewhat watching whereas these movies that they push are just terrible so where are they putting all their time and energy if the script is bad the graphics are bad whatever it's got to be into something else yeah that's an excellent point yeah what is it that's distracting them or 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 prompting them to to make these these other high budget uh productions but you know there there is some hope you know in that respect and of course this is related to what we're talking about with the lionizing and the 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 de-villainization de-vilification of vampires and werewolves and things like that um i think there is some hope you know because some some of these big production companies because they're making such awful cinematic product they're going out of business because people don't want to watch them you know they don't want to watch them destroy star wars they don't want to watch them destroy lord of the rings they don't want to watch them you know destroy stuff that that actually has a little bit of substance to it and is still entertaining and and they're starting to falter and you can't miss the fact that at, at least on that front you know we do seem to be making some headway in the cultural that's yeah. a good point i mean i guess that's what you can take away from all of it i mean the world might be going yeah. you know where and and everything but i just had a conversation with a guy at work today and i don't we're pretty good about rabbit holes here on a silver build podcast so like getting lost in them for hours yeah but but he he said man after covid you know i just wanted to go back to normal and and i hear that so much and i just looked at him and i said life will never go back to normal but christ will come back yeah that's it i mean and you know thankfully we, i mean the end game is written if, if mm-hmm. you if you assent to the the prospect that god offers through jesus then we have the ultimate hope you know and you learn quickly that this this isn't our final resting place anyway the adventure you know continues forever beyond this place thank you so much for taking the time to do this this has been amazing and honestly i would i would love i know lovell i speak for both of us because i know we would love if you could if we could have you back in the future anytime just let me know yeah, well, I could I could go on for days yeah. about the giants in North and South America and <laughs> well, all that. Let's have another let's have another conversation about this. There's no reason it has to perfect. Start. All right. Well, we'll set up a all time right. and I'll I'll email you and let's make this a thing because we really enjoyed this. I mean, it's it sure does beat Lovell and I going back and forth for 
over an hour going down rabbit holes and forgetting where we were <laughs> well there's there, there's value and merit in that too oh i hope so <laughs> at least at least our mom and dad listen to us so <laughs> well thank you so much dr judd you have a wonderful evening and uh we'll keep you in your prayers and again if you would like to let everyone know where they can find you yeah uh people can I, again i'm on facebook twitter uh youtube people can get me at professor burton at yahoo.com and once the websites are revamped, burtonbeyond.com will be back up and running. And then the Institute of Biblical Anthropology, TIOBA.org, uh, once the forwarding goes through. But people can, can in the interim, get a, a look at the new Institute website at drjudburton.com. All right. Thank you so Thanks. much, sir. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> yes, absolutely. God bless. God's people.